This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Vlog Talk Radio. Welcome to this special edition of the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the Green Nonprofit Show. You know going green is the right thing to do for the environment and your organization. But budgets are tight, and knowing how to get started can be a mystery. This show provides the practical advice on going green you and your colleagues need. While each week the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart Radio Show provides advice on fundraising, board development, and social media, this special edition is all about helping you go green on a nonprofit budget. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, this show draws from experts around the world and his book, The Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, available on Amazon.com and at GreenNonprofits.org. Guests on the nonprofit coach, The Green Show, are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofits. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. Remember, just like our weekly show, this is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the nonprofit coach, The Green Show, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this special edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Today is the Green Show, and I'm coming to you live from the global headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America, an intermediary organization helping corporations, foundations, and uh, individuals give internationally. Uh, here on today's show, as always, we start with page one news. As the announcer said, when we get to page two, you can call in and ask questions of our page two expert. 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over there. You can type your questions there or just email me your questions at tedhart.com. Let's get the show started. As always, you can follow along with Page One News over at tedhart.com. Click on Radio Links, where you will not only find the links for today's show, but all of the podcast shows for the last three-plus years here on The Nonprofit Coach. First up today, coming from the, well, it's about time file, uh, coming to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, uh, Bethany Beach in Delaware Council has passed a resolution requiring that organizations running fundraisers at the Seaside Resort must turn over at least 60% of gross proceeds to the charity beneficiaries. And I see this as uh, an important move because we are all aware of the fact that there are uh, organizations, companies out there that offer the uh, sort of trade on uh, charity names and logos to raise money, and all the money goes to the corporation, very little goes to uh, the charity. So I see this as a way to help charities get out ahead of this to make sure that uh, someone is watching out for how much money is going to the charities. And in this case, uh, the resolution passed also uh, requires that the uh, city town manager also review sponsoring organizations' financial records. So I think this is good for the public as well to make sure that only good charities are being supported from these kinds of events. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach comes to us from Partnership for Philanthropic Planning. This is just an update on some topics that we have been interested in uh, for quite some time, and that is a House Committee has advanced permanent extension of the IRA charitable rollover and other charity provisions. Now, this is not a done deal, and in this particular case, it did move forward in uh, the Republican House of Representatives. Uh, it was then tabled, but at least the discussion continues, and there does seem to be some bipartisanship around these issues uh, for charity. Read the update over at tedhart.com. Stay 
on top of this uh, because the committee um, has in the past provided retroactive and permanent extension of the current IRA charitable rollover uh, three times since it was originally enacted in 2006. And of course, um, we are interested in seeing this uh, progress again. So uh, check that out over at tedhart.com. Major announcement made today in the philanthropic marketplace. Uh, CAF America, the organization that I serve as CEO, has partnered with another organization to change the face of employee giving. Uh, John Holm is here with us uh, on the nonprofit coach to bring us up to date on uh, what's happening with this um, major strategic partnership. John Holm, thank you for joining us here on the nonprofit coach. Well, thanks for having me, Ted. Uh, it's some really exciting news that we're having here in the marketplace. Uh, we, we just announced today uh, that we're signing a, an agreement to work with Truist, um, which is a front stream company, on really providing a, a truly customized approach to international employee giving. Uh, and it's something we're very excited about. It, it's, a, it's an industry first to be able to provide this uh, robust and uh, a long list of charities that we can give internationally to. Now, John, this, uh, this is uh, very significant. We're all aware, uh, my listeners are certainly aware of uh, payroll deduction uh, opportunities uh, for domestic uh, charities. Um, it sounds like this is now adding the opportunity for employees to give internationally as well. Is that possible? Uh, yeah, that, that's precisely it. I think what, what's really interesting, as you mentioned, domestically, that option's been around. But it's very challenging with all of the rules and regulations surrounding international grant making to be able to offer a truly international approach and solution to this. And by partnering with Truist now, we've kind of unlocked that key or that door, if you will, uh, to be able to grant internationally with uh, all the protocols followed and following all the formats. So it's something that's truly unique in the marketplace, and we're very excited to uh, be a part of it. Now, John, others in the past have made announcements that sounded similarly interesting, but when you looked under the hood, there were very few charities that actually uh, could be granted to through that kind of partnership. What's different about this announcement? Well, you're hearing me chuckle a little bit, Ted, and that's because it, that's true, always under the hood. I think what's really unique about this is you know, we have over 180,000 charities, and by the way, we expect that list to go up with the announcement of this collaboration, but what's unique about this is that our, our industry-leading risk mitigation due diligence is behind that hood. It's our engine. Yeah? That's what differentiates us. It, essentially, we are risk mitigators. And one thing that's really unique with our relationship, of course, being part of the CAF Global Alliance, which spans six continents, eight different offices, is that our ability to really go undercover and really localize and find out what really is going on uh, in those charities. And so if you go through CAF America, rest assured, you're going to be in a good place. And that's what's really unique in the marketplace. John Holm, thank you so much for joining us today on the announcement of this first of its kind largest global partnership for the announcement of online employee giving now available for domestic and international charities in the United States. Appreciate you joining me here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thanks for having me, Ted. Everyone, you can uh, listen to or read all about this announcement over at tedhart.com. Full details on that available. Uh, there will also be a special edition of the CAF America radio show this Friday at 12 noon Eastern, um, and that will go into more detail, uh, again, looking under the hood and learning more about um, uh, this important partnership uh, for the philanthropic space. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach um, is uh, an announcement from the uh, California Assembly uh, who has voted unanimously to approve legislation last week that would authorize regulators to use the registration fees paid by nonprofits and professional fundraisers in California to crack down on charities to spend little of their money on their mission. Uh, the fact that this was 76 to 0 certainly says that the state Senate in California is very serious about protecting donors. Uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach and all of our listeners certainly agree with that, and making sure that we're cracking down on the unscrupulous allows those of us who are doing a good job in protecting donors on our own right are able to succeed in the marketplace. Uh, so please read all about that over uh, in the radio links uh, today at tedhart.com. Uh, next up here is a good friend of ours of the show. Linda Lysakowski is back with us. Uh, partnership uh, with Charity Channel Press is uh, an important addition here uh, to the nonprofit coach. Linda, thank you for joining us here. Oh, thank you, Ted. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you back. Now, the, the book series at Charity Channel Press continues to grow. 
uh, tell us about um, the growth of this series, and then uh, you're actually, once we get to page two, you're going to make the announcement of our important guest today. Yes, well, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the In the Trenches books, which are part of Charity Channel Press, and many of your listeners are probably very familiar with Charity Channel because it's the oldest online community of nonprofit professionals in the in the world, I believe. Started in 1992, and we're really pleased about these In the Trenches book series because they're written for practitioners by practitioners, and so many times, you know, Busy nonprofit professionals just need something they can pick up and read quickly. It's it's not very esoteric, and it, it just gets right to the point of how you deal with these issues when you are in the trenches. So the, the book that we're going to be talking about today, Sarah Sutton's book on um, the green nonprofit, I think is a perfect example of that because it's written very uh, very much practical advice in mind, and I, and I love this series of books, and you'll be hearing from many of our authors throughout this year that, that are going to talk about various books. But I particularly like this one because I think it's so, um, it's so practical. And, you know, talking about going green, I know this is a big, a big issue of yours, Ted, that you've been on this bandwagon for many, many years. And sometimes nonprofits don't realize how important it is that they go green for several reasons. First of all, I think it puts a little bit more green back into their own bank account. Um, that helps. But funders also, as you can probably uh, advise us too, Ted, is that funders are looking at the environmental sustainability, and a lot of funders are saying, is this nonprofit worthy of support? Is it doing what it can do to protect the environment? So that's why I think this topic today is really an important one. Yeah, I think it's an extremely important topic. As you know, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I co-authored the, the book, The Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, um, and in starting the Green Nonprofits Movement at greennonprofits.org. Um, certainly we wanted to spearhead exactly this kind of effort, the writing of this book, uh, the involvement of uh, Sarah Sutton in such an important topic because the nonprofit sector in the United States, although we, we, it is nonprofit, uh, often people forget um, to understand the significance and the weight and the size of the nonprofit sector collectively. And while each nonprofit may struggle with their budget and each nonprofit may feel that uh, they may be very small and they fe might feel insignificant to their ability to affect the environment, collectively as an industry we're convinced uh, that nonprofits coming together, uh, making a difference, and changing their everyday activities can add up to a significant impact on our environment. Absolutely. And I know when I read this book, even though I'm not a nonprofit, I sat and thought about, gosh, you know, small businesses could take advantage of this as well as, as the nonprofit sector because I looked around and thought, gosh, there's little things that you can do that don't take much time, not very much of an investment, but it's it's going to assure that we're here and our world is here and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and many generations to come are going to benefit from what we do today. It certainly is, and, you know, I find it always interesting, you know, that, that you know, you mention environment and some people want to make it very political, but, you know, we all live on this planet. It's the only one that we have, and whether you, you agree with one scientist or another scientist, it certainly, I think, should bring us together to understand that having a clean environment, conserving our resources is a good idea, regardless of where you come down on what some people might consider to be, uh, you know, uh, a very political topic. I don't find it political at all because um, certainly just living in with clean air and clean water um, are, are good for us regardless of what your political stripes might be. Uh, but we've got a very important guest uh, today, so I think what we'll do uh, is go ahead and uh, flip the page here, get over to page two, and Linda let you make the introduction. So we'll be right back. We are over here on page two. We're back with Linda Lysakowski, who's got the big announcement today about who our guest is here on the Nonprofit Coach the Green Show. Yeah, thanks so much, Ted. And I'm really excited to announce Sarah. Sarah Sutton is a lead accredited professional by the United States Green Building Council, and she's a museum professional with 31 years' experience working with zoos, aquariums, historical societies, art museums, parks, 
Her business is called Sustainable Museums, but she does work with many other types of organizations as well. And she works all over the country helping a variety of organizations improve their environmental sustainability, while at the same time, as we said, helping the bottom line, creating public connections, and planning for a changing future. Um, Sarah was a founding member and co-chair of the American Alliance of Museums Professional Interest Committee called Pick Green, and she was an instigator for the Alliance's Summit on Standards of Environmental Sustainability in Museums in 2013. She speaks frequently at webinars and conferences on environmental sustainability and institutional change. Now, many people in your audience may know her as Sarah Brophy, so I want to make sure that we all understand who we're talking about here. Um, Sarah Brophy is, is the same, one and the same as Sarah Sutton, and many know her for her decades of work researching and writing grant proposals, which is how she came to be such an avid supporter of this environmental sustainability section. Um, you may recall that she wrote, are you grant ready? How to tell your organization is ready to successfully attract grants. She's also the co-author of two editions of the Green Museum, a primer for environmental practice. And of course, the book that I'm really excited about is her Charity Channel Press book called The Green Nonprofit, The First 52 Weeks of Your Green Journey. And what I really love about this book is that it takes a project which might seem intimidating to a lot of people and it breaks it down into doing one or two small things every week and by the end of the year you will be a green nonprofit. so I'm really excited to introduce Sarah Sutton so take it away. Yeah Sarah welcome and Linda thank you so much uh, for your introduction today. Sarah um, I love the uh, the subtitle of this book so I was wondering if you you might start there Linda had sort of uh, indicated that there's significance in that subtitle of the first 52 weeks of your green journey. I thought that was quite a, an interesting way to position this book. So, uh, Sarah Sutton, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show. Hello, Ted, and thank you. And thanks to Linda and Steve from Charity Channel for facilitating the book process. And they get a lot of credit for that 52-week approach. Um, one of the other books that well, I Well, they do know seen, what they're doing over there at Charity Channel Press. Yes, they do. Uh, I, and I'd seen one title that uh, had uh, 50 activities for fundraising. And I thought about how so many folks that I work with just felt like they couldn't get started or it was too much to take on. And it seemed to me that you know one step at a time really is how everyone starts and that 52 steps across a year, not a big hurry but a steady format for progress, might be a way to give them a path into something that often seems complex and overwhelming, but well, really involves Well, we did mention that as well, that, that this can seem overwhelming to some people, and I, I did wonder if that's part of the reason that you wrote this book, is to make it digestible. Exactly, because even if you don't want to take on all 52 weeks right now where the thought of it is too much, you can choose one week and start there and feel good about it and learn something and then find another week activity to try. So I suppose this could actually be a two or three year process if you felt like you were stretched, but um, you can you know, do something every couple of weeks if, uh, if you really felt like your staff was too small or you just really couldn't make the commitment. Right, and I find, well, and probably all of us do that work with nonprofits that our clients or our students or whomever the public is that we're working with, you have to start where they are, where they are in their understanding, their energy and their interest, and work from there in order to build commitment to your organization or to the work that you do. Sometimes and it is just a matter of getting started, isn't it? it? It truly is. And sometimes some of us have to start all by ourselves because there isn't institutional support. And maybe the person sitting by his or herself in her office trying to figure out how to start a recycling program might find a way in here to start at their own desk and encourage others just by example. Well, let's talk a little bit about the value of being a champion and having a champion uh, to be able to get a program like this underway. A champion is critical. And every once in a while, somebody who's looking around for a champion discovers that they're actually the one. Anybody can be the champion. It requires getting started. And you'd be surprised by 
how many people notice your behaviors and then copy them. So if you bring in your lunch in a bag, in a reusable bag, you always have a reusable mug, you always have a reusable bottle. People will notice that, and little by little they will either copy you or ask you why you do it. Maybe they'll just make a joke about how you always do that. It's an opportunity for you to explain why you do it and to help them pick up the process and do it with you. Well, it sounds like you just gave us a few of the tips and, and, and an approach here. Can you walk us through sort of how you do get started, and um, is it more successful just to sort of be a self-declared uh, champion, or do you try to get institutional buy-in? I think the answer to that question, and probably to others that if there are callers they might ask, will start off with it depends. And because green is such a local issue. It depends upon the geography, the culture, the community you're in, the building you're in, the work that you do. It, uh, each starting place is going to be different. So one way I help people think about it is to look for problems or opportunities that keep coming up to them. So let's say you sit down in exasperation and you say that I can never find a plug to use. Well, what's that? What why can't you find a plug? It's because they're all full of all sorts of things that are unnecessarily left plugged in. So maybe you could think about reducing your plug load just by going through and doing an, in a, a plug inventory in your own office and saying, do you really need all those items plugged in? Maybe some can come off, and then when you need it, you can plug it in. Right. So, again, this is sounding awfully practical. Uh, it's sounding like this is not a heavy lift. What generally gets in the way of success? I think it can often be just fear of risk of making a mistake, making a wrong choice, or fearing that you won't make enough of a difference, that it doesn't matter if I just unplug my phone charger every night. Uh, but as we said before, it does make a difference. By example, if you reduce your impact, you're at least reducing your impact and you're giving an example for other, others to do it. But oftentimes the real issue is risk. People don't know how to make the best choice. Should I, if they're thinking grand like energy, do I want wind energy or do I want solar energy? Well, maybe that's not the question to be asking at the time, and you need to step back a little bit and find out what your energy uses are, what your energy needs are. You need to do the basic research all of us as nonprofits know how to do about what's important to my organization, and what are the things I need to make sure happen? That will tell you where to start with your green changes. What is mission-specific for you is the place to start looking, and that's how you'll narrow your risk in that area. And then so always get good help. Do you find that people start feeling overwhelmed by the, the questions themselves? <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, I certainly do when I'm tackling a problem like that. Uh, no one is particularly gifted and talented at being environmentally sustainable. No one's all green. No one goes green all at once. It, it takes time. And so usually if you can find something that matters to you most, either you're most interested in or it most affects your organization, that's the best place to start because the resources of time, money, and human um, effort to make that change are going to most be, be most appropriately spent on your mission-specific issues. There certainly are many shades of green, uh, mm -hmm. and I find that sometimes uh, people get um, almost uh, too concerned about, you know, am I what, what I might consider to be maybe sort of crunchy green, or do I open myself up to criticism that, you know, I'm trying my best, I'm trying to be more green, uh, but do people start looking at me and say, well, you're not green enough? Exactly. Uh, I think the public has an assumption that you're either green or you're not, um, that if you're only partway green, then perhaps you haven't put enough effort into it, or that perhaps you're uh, practicing greenwashing, you're making yourself seem greener yeah, than you really that, are. Explain that, because that is a big a com you know, concern. So explain what is greenwashing. Well, greenwashing is behaving or as if or suggesting that your green work that you do is um, uh, more, more expansive. There's more green work that you're doing than in reality. So if an organization is just promoting how green they are in their processes, um, 
but they don't have the evidence to back it up, and they aren't really green in their processes. They're just using it for PR. That would be an example of greenwashing. Right, right, right. So, so someone gets gets started, and and my uh, the producer of the show told me that you are familiar with uh, the book, the Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, uh, and of course, you know today we're talking about the green nonprofit. The, 50, the first 52 weeks of your green journey, which we do have a link directly to the book um, in the radio links today at tedhart.com. They're different and they're the same. I'm wondering what you think about the approaches of the two works um, and why you chose your approach. Uh, I think we need both, and uh, yours was already out there rocking and rolling, and I <laughs> really liked your checklist at the back, your test li- chest checklist approach. Um, to becoming certified as a green nonprofit. And I think that's a really valuable tool. And for someone who might be thinking, well, this is a hard, complex topic, I want to sneak up on it, perhaps a 52-week pathway might be a good way to get them started. Mm -hmm. Uh, The depth of material that you have in your book and the great resources that you've got there are very important for people to understand why they're making change or for advising their board members in Mm -hmm. decision-making. And I think the two works support each other in that way. Yeah, I think so, too, and I really appreciate you saying that. I I think our book is a really good resource guide and and almost as a place to go when you have the the Green Nonprofit book, the 52 Weeks book, um, as a way to sort of get that backup research to get additional information. But I found that your book is a great companion because it does break down some pretty weighty topics that, that we purposely cover uh, in the Nonprofit Guide to Going Green and does make it much more approachable. Well, and I uh, recently was taking a class. Uh, the Harvard Extension School has um, adult education programs, and I was taking a class on climate science because I felt that I needed to understand more about the physics of climate change, changing climate. I needed to understand the politics. And in the process, uh, as students, we were all discovering that there's sort of a scientific approach, and there's a group, the scientists, who want to know all of the data behind the physics of a, a changing climate. And there are other folks who aren't prepared to take it to that level yet. And as I said earlier, we have to meet our clients, our students, our um, community where they are, and then bring them forward into a greener world. Both these books give us a way of doing that. Right, right, combining the two together. Some nonprofits are making real strides in changing their institutions. Some are changing those around them, and others are changing themselves and the world around them. So it's, again, just like there's a, a wide spectrum in in uh, um, various shades of being green, certainly uh, lots of organizations have taken different paths. I wanted to ask you about uh, Dumbarton House, the headquarters and museum of the National Society for the Colonial Dames of America, uh, and and that story regarding um, the approach that they're taking. Well, Dumbarton House is a historic property located uh, in in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., uh, just for clarification, it's not the same as Dumbarton Oaks, which is nearby, but a different property. Um, Dumbarton House is an urban uh, historic preservation site and a history museum. And I was working with them as a, a grant writer. And in the process, they came to develop a growing green ethic because they have 40-plus properties all across the country. And they wanted to pilot green projects here at Dumbarton House, which they could then share across the Dames community in other historic preservation. So they have designated that one of their staff members is the sustainability officer, and she has helped leading by example, starting with energy reduction and then graduating to purchasing all wind-supported energy. Uh, They've changed all of their uh, mailing and uh, long-distance purchases systems so that they are reusing as many materials as they can and they're not purchasing as much as they would have in the past. And they've created a strategic sustainability statement that guides the whole institution's thinking about how to progress towards green. You also have a terrific example, and we're all very much aware of um, the trials of the city of Detroit. Um, But there's good news to be had at the Detroit Zoo. Absolutely. 
they began their greening work a good long time ago. And uh, as an example of the folks who wanted to make sure they got the story right before they were sharing it with the world, they started all of their in-house uh, work with a green team and then progressed to hiring a full-time sustainability officer and working throughout the zoo to identify the high-impact areas to be more environmentally sustainable and the ways in which they can educate the public and spread the word. Uh, one of the most exciting examples is the decision to not sell bottled water on site, single-use bottled water. And, of course, that's, that's done at so many zoos. What, what has that one change meant to the Detroit Zoo? Well, it meant that they were able to cut the uh, use of single-use bottles by more than a third. Um, they have a three-year timeline for rolling it out, but basically 47,000 water bottles were not purchased, used, and thrown away uh, in their first year of making this change. And the reason it worked so well was a two-pronged approach. They educated the staff and the public about the change they were making, and they provided a change in infrastructure because, as you can imagine, in Detroit in the summertime, if you have a high visitation day and everybody's hot and thirsty with no access to a beverage, that's actually uh, a health and safety issue. And so they've installed water bottle filling stations so that folks can bring their own bottles or purchase a zoo, um, American-made, PBA-free zoo bottle and reload their own water right there. And so, so that adds to the affinity to the zoo, which is good, good news for the zoo. Um, but also allows them to be green at the same time. So um, I think it was Linda that had mentioned in your introduction that oftentimes going in this direction can positively affect the bottom line. Absolutely. They have not had a, a single peep of somebody who was un upset, and the PR has been excellent. The public really supports such a change at their zoo, and they've expanded their definition of the zoo as a conservation organization. They always knew they were an animal um, safety and protection place, um, that, they, that they did conservation work throughout the world, but now they can see the Detroit Zoo is doing conservation work right there at home where their visitors live, making a big change in um, the southeast Michigan region. And I can't imagine what a positive impact that has on our young people who see and learn about conservation and see it in practice. Absolutely. Well, we all know the stories of how it's the children who get the parents to recycle because the kids learn the recycling at school. That can be the same thing at all of all the rest of the nonprofits, just not at not just at school, but at the zoo or an aquarium and their after-school program, um, in their playgroup. It's an excellent way to to reach a broad part of the public. Now we have a, a strict policy here at the nonprofit coach radio show that this is not a political show. Um, that we that we don't take on political topics. Um, however, in the time that I've written uh, the nonprofit guide to going green, and now that you have this book, uh, it seems to be impossible to completely separate um, criticism of um, environmental topics. How do you answer that question that inevitably comes up in some circles? Well, climate change or a changed climate is no longer um, an opinion. It's not, and so we're not trying to change opinion. Um, we have lots of facts and resources to hand, whether it's provided by the International Panel on Climate Change or it's uh, the President's most recent report on climate change in America, or it's folks who recognize that bloom times in their backyard are different or planting times are different in their yard or that there might not be more hurricanes, but when there are more hurricanes, they're very likely to be worse. And so people are feeling the impact themselves. So I have found that I run into fewer and fewer questions um, because people are understanding that it's a change that affects them. It's really hard to believe something that is um, so far in the future in some ways for serious climate change. Um, and it's hard to uh, understand something that seems to primarily happen in the news to someone else. But when people start to see climate change or um, change in resource availability in their own lives, that's when they start to understand it. So whenever I'm working with someone, talking with someone, we talk about what's their local experience and what changes have they seen, and then I connect that to change in the world. 
Well, I think that's a, a good way to answer. Talk to us a little bit about um, the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Well, the National Trust uh, is responsible in some in for providing standards for historic preservation for all of the privately and publicly owned um, historic sites in the country. And they early on saw that the U.S. Green Building Council's LEAD program, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, that LEAD program standards for how green a building is, put an awful lot of energy into new construction and didn't give a whole lot of credit to an existing building and what you could call embodied energy, the energy that went into building that building. And uh, it seemed to encourage new building over saving old buildings. And so the trust has been working with U.S. Green Building Council in order to create uh, better opportunities for folks who have an existing building to achieve LEED certification. And talk to us about LEED certification, because that's a big topic, and I think it can hold people back because it just seems expensive and out of reach. Exactly. Well, the first answer is that there that LEED is an, an important and powerful market driving tool, which is what it was designed to do, is to create a market for more sustainable building, primarily in new construction. And the success of the program has spawned a number of other um, certification programs, sometimes in response because LEED is complex and the paperwork and um, the engineering and certification work uh, can have a significant bill attached to it. So some other systems were developed sort of uh, in either in parallel or in contrast. And I do. I took the training. I'm an accredited professional for working with the LEED system for existing buildings, and I see tremendous value in a checklist with practical instruction on how a person can make change, but then depth of information that helps you understand why that change is important. And the LEED guidebooks provide that. No one is requiring us necessarily to be a lead building unless that's something that your particular community has enacted as a law, your state has enacted and, as a law. And there standard. are different levels. There are, definitely. And I think that's, uh, like you said, with the colors of shades of green, um, the four different levels ask only that you meet the basic standards and then or if you'd like to go all the way up to platinum to the highest level to be an extraordinarily efficient building. But and you that get can to be quite expensive. Uh, well, that's a yes and no answer. Um, it depends upon the building you're in. Retrofits can be expensive for an historic property, um, which is why in the changes that uh, are being made with the new additions, you now get more allowances so that you could be a platinum existing building, and there are many of those. Um, but if you do your design work at the beginning of a new project, it doesn't have to cost more to be extremely efficient. And of course, if you went ahead and calculated the life cycle costs of running your building, what it would cost high efficient and not efficient at all, often that math works out extremely well in your favor. But what it requires is commitment at the beginning to doing a good job. All right. And so what advice do you have for nonprofits who are in an existing building or renting? Well, if you're renting, uh, the best thing to do is to figure out what changes you can make in the space that you are operating in your, um, they call it occupant behavior. If <laughs> we change the way we do things, how things, how many things we plug in, how, many, how often the lights are turned on, how high or low the temperature is. There are occupant changes you can make as an institution, as an organization. But you can also speak with your landowner and help them understand what changes for the whole um, property might mean for them in their return. Um, and the best way to do that is to find another organization, a colleague who's done the same thing, ask questions, and try and share information among the three of you. And I forgot so, the first part of the question. Well, I, 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 think, I think you answered that in, in that sharing information becomes an important part of, of success as well, that you know, just having the book or trying to go it alone is not necessarily the answer either. Right. Well, we can't know it all. It's just impossible. And 
environmental sustainability, by definition, is an ecosystem concept. So it's, it's a web of related activities and materials, and any choice or decision you make will have an effect in multiple areas. It's not very linear. And that's part of the risk issue. We can't anticipate all of those. And so one way to reduce the risk for unanticipated consequences is to talk with other folks who either know more about the subject you're interested in or have gone through the process before you. And believe me, they will shortcut this for you so quickly, it, it, it'll make a huge difference. And it will encourage you that others have done it and you can do it too. It builds your network. Speaking of learning um, and sharing, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like you to talk to us about the Center for Sustainable Landscapes and what significance that has to this movement. We'll be right back with Sarah Sutton. I want to draw your attention to a very important annual show, and that is uh, the Giving USA report will be released on this show, as it has for the last couple of shows, uh, on June 17th, and that's at a special time, 11 a.m., uh, for the announcement of the latest edition of the Giving USA report. So mark your calendars for this important annual announcement on the Giving USA numbers uh, for last year. Uh, don't forget that we will uh, soon uh, after that. Uh, just have one last show before we go into our summer break, and that is scheduled uh, for June 24th. Uh, we will be here with the last edition of the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show uh, until we come back uh, after uh, the summer break, and we hope that uh, everyone will have a fantastic summer. Uh, and that is the first show coming back uh, from the summer break is scheduled for September 16th. So uh, over the summer is a great time to be caught, to catch up with all of the hundreds of nonprofit coach radio show podcasts. And keep in mind, you can download them uh, to your iPod or iPad. They, we are iTunes friendly, and that will allow you to take us to the beach learn from the experts from around the world here on The Nonprofit Coach. And we're going to uh, get a little bit of an update on some information uh, available to us uh, from Google. When you have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices, Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles. And work together on the same doc at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. Edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting. Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks. Everyone can't be in the same place at the same time, but Google Apps lets you work together from any place. With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. While screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team at any time, from any place, on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. To learn more, go to google.com slash apps.
Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on Radio Link. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with uh, Sarah Sutton. Sarah, welcome uh, back here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach as we come down to the final uh, 15 minutes of the show. Uh, I know that significant work has been done at Phipps Arboretum, and I was wondering if you could uh, tell us how, why, what is the significance of the Center for Sustainable Landscapes. Oh, hold on one second. It would help if I turned on your microphone. There you go, Sarah. We're back. All right. Thank you. Well, the FIPS in Philadelphia has been a green leader for, I'd say, at least a decade. They started off by um, creating a lead existing building, which was under their new, uh, one of their uh, original historic conservatory buildings, and they turned it into a visitor center and a cafe um, and a gift shop and the way that the public gets oriented to the property. Um, then they built a silver building for their arboretum, and then they moved on to the Center for Sustainable Landscapes, which is a living building. So it's not only is it an educational site for teaching about environmental sustainability and plants and environment, but the building itself is a net zero energy building that it, it improves impact on the environment. One of the most exciting things about it is that it has a, what they call an epiphany system. Uh, Richard Piacentini, who is uh, the visionary leader of the organization, uh, heard a report about someone using satellite dishes to distill wastewater to produce a drinkable item. And in their case, what they've done at the FIPS is use that system in order to test the process of distilling water in order to turn it into pharmaceutical grade um, distilled water that they can use in order to support the plants in their collection that require that high standard of water. And it means they don't have to buy it. No one else has to produce it. They use the sun to provide it right on site. And that sort of example is what is we what need, we need to, to lead the lead major the change, change, the global, the global type change, change that also that has also to happen when each of us is going, going along unplugging our walls or, or, choosing, or choosing to carry our, bath, our, bath, our, bags, our bags to work and making and smaller make decisions. decisions. Some, folks Some folks are making are global change, change and FIPS is one of those. So again, shades of green, but a very wide spectrum. So you can take small steps that add up to something meaningful. Uh, but you might also be able to be on the cutting edge and be a leader. Exactly. And, but, you know, the FIPS didn't get to that stage all of a sudden. They weren't born into leadership. They developed it in small steps as they went along. And what's so wonderful about all the staff, staff at the FIPS is they understand that is present in all of us, that we all need to start someplace, and they're there in order to help people go as far as they can with their green work, personally or in organizations. Now, it would seem to me that an organization like that needs to have a staff of true believers, so does that become part of the hiring process? Uh, I can't answer from personal experience, but I would I would say that it has to come from it has to be part of the hiring process. But remember that some of the folks are already there from before green was a fad, which means those folks need to be brought along. And in their particular case, that has happened because all of the all of the staff who are already green share that and encourage it with others, and the leadership reinforces it. So if they have a um, they buy a share a green a share in the CSA community supported agriculture, and each week they raffle it off to two team members who share that um, provision of vegetables uh, for the week. And that's a way to encourage folks to eat healthy and to understand eating healthy back at home so they, all of the staff members can take it back home and practice green work and learn more about it. The whole staff there is always learning. In the uh, final few moments that we have here, I was wondering if you could outline sort of a step-by-step process that all my listeners might consider uh, as they're starting their own journey and then, of course, make sure that everybody knows how to reach you. 
All right. All right. Well, the first thing I do is tell folks that you're interested in doing good green work. And you can either start by uh, week one of the book and create a green bulletin board and then encourage people to join your green team. Or you can jump right into later on and ask for permission in order to do an audit of your building, an energy audit or a waste audit um, of your building in order to find out where there are opportunities to make change. And then pick an area. Don't take on your whole institution. Pick an area of water or energy or materials or food and pilot your projects and expand them as you learn more about this. You won't make it you won't do it perfectly as you get started. You won't even do it perfectly partway through your journey, but you will get better and better as you go. And it's taking that first step on the journey that I think is critical. And you uh, give and fifty two weeks, weeks of ideas. <laughs> yep, I have 52 weeks of ideas. You can ban bottled water. You can stop using styrofoam. You can help your colleagues print on both sides of a piece of paper. Um, you can come up with ways to keep your building cleaner and reduce the amount of um, washing and wiping down might have to take place on your sidewalks and inside the front entrance part of your building. All of that will reduce impact. And let's see, if you want to know how to get a hold of me, my name is Sarah Sutton, and I can be reached at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at sustainablemuseums.net. Sarah Sutton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for um, sharing this terrific book, which is very digestible, very easy for people to take step-by-step step and to learn how they can add to the global solution uh, right from their own green nonprofit. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Ted. It, really it really makes a difference, a difference, and I appreciate you giving me this platform and for speaking about it and, and, and organizing, organizing your organization, organization and the checklist that can make such a difference. Thank you, everyone. Do not forget the big show on June 17th, the announcement from Giving USA of the new numbers that define our uh, entire philanthropic marketplace uh, here in the United States, and we will be giving you that announcement on June 17th at 11 a.m. Everyone, have a great time until we're back with the Giving USA Report. Take care, everyone. Bye, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.